Good evening, brothers and sisters. Please do have a seat. And uh, could you please turn up your church Bibles once again uh, to page 1071, the passage we've just read just now. Uh, page 1071, uh, John chapter 11, uh, verse 55. Uh, and we're actually going to preach all the way to uh, chapter 12, verse 19. Uh, also, if you see the white bulletin you received as you came in, in the center page of that, there is a uh, uh, sermon outline. Uh, it help, helpful to have that in front of you as well. It's particularly, there's a cross-reference there we're going to refer to a little bit later on. But uh, most importantly, John 11:55, page 1071. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. We thank you that you've been speaking to us uh, as your Word was read and sung. Uh, and we pray now, Lord, that you continue to do that as we uh, consider this passage together. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, your Spirit will strengthen me, uh, enable me to preach this Word rightly uh, and in His power. Uh, and please, would your Spirit work in each one of our hearts, that you would open our eyes uh, to Jesus, uh, that we might love Him uh, and truly uh, serve Him from our hearts. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a well-known saying that there are two things that is inevitable. You remember what they are? Death and taxes. That's right, yes. Uh, but actually, you only have to die once. Taxes, you've got to pay many times. In the part of John's Gospel we're looking at today, uh, the death of Jesus at the hands of the Jewish leadership appears to be inevitable. Jesus was going to be killed, and it's going to happen soon. And the place it would happen would be Jerusalem. Jerusalem had become a dangerous place for Jesus. Back in chapter 10, he had spoken about, the, about, about being the good shepherd. Uh, and he was there when he talked about that, and they thought he was mad. But then when he said he is God, well, then they wanted to kill him. In chapter 11, he is back in the area, two miles away in Bethany. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life. And then he raised Lazarus from the dead. And people began to believe in him. In fact, lots of people believed in him. And the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they were worried. Uh, because if he went on to create unrest, the Jews, the, the Romans would come and take away their temple and their nation. And so you remember what the high priest said last week? He said, it's better that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. He meant, better let's kill Jesus, even though murder's wrong, better than to let him go on and many people will die from the chaos that comes about. But as high priest, he spoke, he spoke better than he knew. Jesus would indeed die, the one for the many. He would die to take the punishment of the sins of God's people from that nation, but not only from the nation, but from the whole world. Uh, and so from that day onwards, the Jewish leaders, not only they want him dead, but they began to make definite plans to kill him. Jesus' death at their hands was going to be inevitable, and he knew this, uh, which is why at the end of our passage last week in verse 54 of chapter 11, Jesus withdrew from the area, goes somewhere a bit further out on the edge of the wilderness. But the time had not quite come yet uh, for him to die. But it's getting closer. In our passage next week, Jesus will declare that the time has come. Uh, but today, somewhere in between, today we read in verse 55, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. It was coming near. 
You remember the Passover was the time when the Jews commemorated the great rescue God had made when he took them out of Egypt. Uh, Israel had been slaves in Egypt. Uh, God rescued them by bringing judgment upon the Egyptians, including that final judgment of striking down the firstborn of all the, 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 the sons in each household. And God told the Israelites that in each of their households they were to slaughter a lamb and they will put the blood on the doorposts. And uh, when the angel of death came, he would pass over their houses. And so the Egyptian houses, the firstborn son would die. In the Israelite houses, a lamb would die instead. Now remember what John the Baptist said right back at the beginning of John's Gospel. He said about Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus was the true Passover lamb. Jesus was the one who was going to be slaughtered. He would the one, he's the one who would die as a substitute for the sins of God's people. And now John is telling us here that the Passover, the time for sacrifice, is coming. And because we know that there's a plot to kill Jesus, we wonder, is this the time when the true Lamb of God would be slain? For most of the Jews, though, they don't see the significance. Verse 55 also tells us that many of them went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Right? They come early. Why? They've got to make sure that they are ritually clean before the Passover. And if they accidentally get unclean on the journey, they've got time to fix it up before the Passover happens. So it's a week before the Passover, and Jerusalem is full of people who've come all over, from all over the country to celebrate. And there's a certain excitement in the air this year, a certain expectation, a certain sense that a showdown is going to happen. Uh, because in verse 56, they are looking for Jesus and they're saying to each other, do you think, is he going to come to the feast at all? Because, you know, maybe the bookie's got the odds two to one, uh, that Jesus is not coming or, or something like that. Because the crowds know that Jesus is a wanted man in this place. The Jewish leadership have not kept their plans a secret. Verse 57 says they've given orders that if anyone knows where Jesus is, they must report so they can arrest him. So big crowds in Jerusalem, they're wondering, is Jesus going to show? His arrest would be inevitable if he does. So what does Jesus do? Well, chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Jerusalem is dangerous, so Jesus goes to Bethany. That makes sense until you realize that Bethany is only two miles from Jerusalem. It's like from here to Jalan Duta, near, near Jalan Samantha on that side. Or you go the other way, somewhere in Brickfields. It's actually not that far. And you remember, that's the place everyone knows who he is because he's the one who raised Lazarus. In fact, if you go down to verse 9, you'll see that there ends up being a big crowd coming to see him. So going to Bethany is not such a great idea if you're trying to avoid arrest in Jerusalem, is it? But you see, Jesus knows his time is coming soon, that he is going to die. The Passover is coming, and so he's going in that direction. He goes to Bethany near Jerusalem. And in Bethany, Jesus is honored at a dinner. John doesn't tell us who the host is, but we do know from verse 2 that Martha, the sister of Lazarus, Lazarus is the one that Jesus raised from the dead, she's one of the people serving. And Lazarus himself was one of the people sitting with Jesus at the table. It says that they were reclining at table uh, in verse 2, because in those of us people don't sit at a, like a dining table like we do nowadays, right? What they do is they, they, they lie down 
at the table. They lie down, they sit, they sit, sit there, they lie down, their feet out like this, you know. I think very nice, lah. You know, because you eat, eat, finish eating, then you so fully roll over and go to sleep, okay? Uh, but this is, this, is, uh, this is what they did. And so Jesus is there reclining at table, and it becomes apparent that someone's doing something with his feet. And that someone is Mary, in verse 3, the other sister of Lazarus. It says in verse 3 that Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, pure nard was very expensive. It would have been brought all the way in from Nepal or North India. And if what Judas later says in verse 5 is not an exaggeration, it was worth 300 denarii. That is 300 days' wages equivalent to, say, about 40,000 ringgit in our society. Now, that is expensive perfume. And she doesn't just spray a little bit. She pours out half a liter of the stuff on Jesus. In a great act of devotion, she anoints Jesus on the feet. In that culture, feet were kind of dirty. They are unworthy of attention. To wash someone's feet is the task of the humblest slave, which is why you notice Jesus, a little bit later on, is going to wash the feet of his disciples. And here, Mary is anointing his feet extravagantly with expensive perfume and wiping it with her hair. This is really OTT, over the top. And she's using so much ointment on Jesus until verse 3 tells us that, that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's an astonishingly extravagant display of love, affection, and devotion to Jesus. But not everyone approves of this. And one of the people who doesn't approve is Judas Iscariot, the disciple who was going to betray Jesus. He gets on his moral high horse, and he says in verse 5, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Right? 40,000 bucks could have set up a feeding needy program for, for years to come. Instead, it's just wasted on Jesus, just like that. It sounds like a good question, doesn't it? Though Judas is not actually interested in helping the poor, verse 6 tells us that actually he's a thief. He has charge of the money bag, and he used to help himself to what was put in it. An extra 40000 in the money bag, well, that would have been quite convenient, really. Are you surprised that even one of the 12 disciples of Jesus was corrupt. Friends, don't be naive. There is always a danger of corruption in churches because people are sinful. We've seen famous examples of Christian leaders who have stolen church money uh, even within our own region. Now, I don't know of any financial corruption in St. Mary's, but as a matter of principle, we should always take precautionary measures. We always have two unrelated people counting the collection. We always have two people signing the checks. We always have two people to check and approve expenses. Some people say, no, Nila, we're all Christians. No, 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 no. There was even corruption among the disciples of Jesus. And there will be evil people who infiltrate our ranks as well. So Judas, he was not just a traitor but he was also a thief. 
and the cheek of this thief to take the high moral ground and criticize Mary for her actions. Projecting an image of being concerned for the poor, but actually just lining his own pockets. He's not just a betrayer and a thief, he's, he's also a hypocrite. But look what happens next. Rushing to Mary's defense is none other than Jesus himself. But Jesus is on your side, you don't have to worry about your critics. Uh, Jesus says in verse 7, leave her alone. Leave her alone, verse 7, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Or if you look at the footnotes, you can see an alternative translation, which I actually think makes more sense. It says, leave her alone. She intended to keep it for the day of my burial. As Mary didn't sell the perfume and give it to the poor because she was actually keeping it for the burial of Jesus. She actually believed Jesus when he said he was going to die. She knew his death was inevitable. And so she actually kept this for his death. But now, in her love and affection and devotion, she's giving it to him in life. Now, this is not the point of the passage, but can I just say this? If there is something you need to do or say to someone to show them love or honor or affection, please don't wait until they die. It's too late. Do it while they're still alive. Mary takes what she kept for Jesus' burial and gives it to him first. And so her act becomes an anticipation, a preparation, a prefiguring of his burial. I wonder, I just wonder, if Mary decided she may as well give it to him now because she realized that he wouldn't be buried for very long. After all, she had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. She knew that he is the resurrection and the life, uh, that he would be the one who will raise the dead on the last day, that those who believe in him would be raised to never die again. And if that is the case, even if Jesus were actually to be killed, do you think he would really remain dead? If it's inevitable that he dies, wouldn't it also be inevitable that he who is the resurrection and the life would, would also be raised again? Now, we don't know if that's what Mary was thinking, but if it was, and this is not only an act of devoted love, but of great faith, a faith that would be thoroughly vindicated that first Easter Sunday. But either way, Jesus defends Mary's action, and then he adds in verse 8, For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. The poor you'll always have with you, but you do not always have me. What? It is right to be concerned for the poor. Uh, Deuteronomy 15.11, uh, part of our Old Testament reading, which is quoted in your outline, says this, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. A concern for the poor is an ongoing part of discipleship. You will always have the poor, always be generous with them. But what's happening here in the last days of Jesus' earthly life? This is something that is so significant in the history of the universe that it can never be repeated. Jesus is unique. You see, if Mary had used the ointment on herself or someone else like you or me, then maybe it would have been a bit of a wasteler. 
Now, you could mount an argument that poor people deserve food and shelter more than you and I deserve to smell beautiful. But with Jesus, it's an entirely different matter. Half a liter of perfume is nothing compared to what he really deserves. He deserves everything, everything, everything. He deserves it because he is God made flesh. He deserves it because everything in the universe has been made by him and for him. He deserves it because he is going to go and die and be buried for us. Jesus deserves all honor and it is not a waste to give anything to him. And friends, even today, it is not a waste to give money for the glory of Jesus. Jesus is glorified as people come to hear who he is and what he has done for us in his death and resurrection. Jesus is glorified as people come to trust in his death on the cross and that death alone to pay for their sins. Jesus is glorified as people believe in him as their risen Lord and obey what he commands. Jesus is glorified as the gospel goes out and lives are changed. And Jesus will be glorified at the end of the age when people from every tribe and language and nation gather before him in love and thankfulness for saving them by his blood. And the most important thing in the world and the best thing in the world is that Jesus be glorified. Jesus deserves to be trusted and worshipped and obeyed. Sure, it's important to help the poor. That is still part of discipleship. But it is even more important and certainly not a waste for us to show our love for Jesus by using our resources extravagantly, lovingly, in an over-the-top kind of way to see the gospel go out and people coming to believe in Him. Because He deserves it. Now, while all this is going on over dinner, a crowd is building up. Uh, in verse 9, we see is the crowd of Jews. They come from Jerusalem. They come to see Jesus, but they also come to see Lazarus. They come to see the evidence that Jesus really is someone who can raise the dead. And then the chief priests in verse 10, they make plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were believing in Jesus. You see that? They want to get rid of the evidence of who Jesus is. And so they want to kill Lazarus as well. Friends, that is the effect of sin on the human heart. I wonder if there's anyone here that, you know, you don't want Jesus to be your Lord. And so you'll find every excuse to avoid it. And when the evidence is right there, staring you in the face, what are you going to do? You go, try and get rid of the evidence. If you're someone here today who is not yet trusting in Jesus, please, please don't be like those chief priests. You know, there's a book in Book Corner you can pick up. Uh, it's called The Case for Christ. It'll tell you about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Go and get a copy and read for yourself. Or you just read John's Gospel again. See what John, as an eyewitness, is telling you about Jesus. Look at the evidence directly. Don't try, don't try and cover it up. Don't try and take it away. Well, we've already seen that Bethany was dangerous because it's near Jerusalem. But the next day, Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem itself. 
Now, we look at that in detail every year on Palm Sunday, so I'm only going to deal with it very briefly here. Verse 12 tells us the large crowd had come to the feast to hear that, uh, when, sorry, when the large crowd who had come for the feast heard that, that, that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, uh, they took branches of palm, in verse 13, a nationalist symbol, they go out to meet him, they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Uh, they believe that he is the Messiah, God's promised King, uh, because the Messiah raised Lazarus from the dead, he will raise and restore Israel. Uh, and Jesus himself implies that he is the king uh, by getting in verse 14 on a young donkey. Why? Because he's fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah in verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's coat. But the disciples don't get it. They're still blur about that. Uh, verse 16 says that they don't really understand until after Jesus is glorified, after his death and resurrection. Ah, then they kind of look back and they go, oh, okay, okay, okay. That's what it was about. In the meantime, Jesus walks, or better, he rides into the danger. He enters that city where he knows he's going to be killed. And he does so with a smell of that perfume on his feet, the, the perfume for his burial. And that reminds him every step of the way that his death is indeed inevitable. Meanwhile, verse 17 tells us that the people who had witnessed the raising of Lazarus continue to bear witness. They keep on talking all about what happened. They've seen Lazarus being raised from the dead. Yeah, we saw that two weeks ago. They've seen Lazarus being so that they can't have to talk, 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 tell people, tell, 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 tell. And they keep on telling, which is why in verse 18, this whole crowd goes out to meet Jesus, to find out about him. Because that's how it works, isn't it? Those who know that Jesus raised Lazarus go and tell someone else. And they too come and acknowledge him as king. And that's, that's, that works in our situation as well. All right, you and I, we know that Jesus did a remarkable thing in raising Lazarus. Even more importantly, you and I know that Jesus himself is risen from the dead. And you and I know that one day he will come back to, 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 to raise all the dead and, and to be the judge of everyone. And we know that he can give eternal life to all who believe. Now talk about this. Tell others. Tell me, who do you know who needs to hear about this as well? Who do you know who needs to hear about this? Well, how are you going to share it with them? How are you going to tell? Well, as the crowds build up, the Jewish leaders become more and more anxious. Uh, in verse 19, they, they say to each other, uh, you, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Might have been a slight exaggeration at the time, but it must have felt like it. Jesus has come to Jerusalem, and the crowds are greeting him as king. Surely this must strengthen their resolve to kill him. They say to each other, the world has gone after him. And little do they know that he would die at their hands in order to gather his people from all over the world. We'll see more of that next week. So today we've seen Jesus moving forward towards his inevitable death. His death we know is inevitable because the Jewish leaders are plotting it, and he seems to be heading right into their hands. But friends, the death of Jesus is inevitable for, in another way as well. You remember right back at the beginning of his ministry, John the Baptist has already described him as the Lamb of God. 
Jesus himself had said that he must be lifted up like the bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. Just a couple of weeks ago, we saw Jesus describing himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The death of Jesus was part of God's plan. And so it had actually always been inevitable. How are you responding to this inevitable death of Jesus? Will you try to eliminate him or the, the evidence for him so you don't have to face up to that evidence, like the, like the Jewish leadership? Will you use him and his people to, to get what you want for yourself, like Judas? Or will you recognize that Jesus died for you to take the penalty of sin on your behalf? Will you recognize that he has shown you such great love? The Son of God loved you and gave himself for you. Will you respond to his love by loving him and by giving your whole life as a living sacrifice to him? Will you show your love to him by keeping his commandments and by loving others? And will you find extravagant, over-the-top ways to express your love? A preacher once said, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Finally, let us recall that the, when the time came for Jesus to die, Jesus went boldly towards it. For he knew he was fulfilling the Father's plan. And if we belong to Jesus, then we too can approach our inevitable deaths with confidence. Knowing that by faith in him, our sins have been forgiven through his death for us on the cross. And the good shepherd who loves us will keep us safely in his presence and will raise us up on that last day to enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your son did not shrink back from his inevitable death, but went towards it with confidence in you. Thank you that he died for our sins and in our place so that we can be forgiven. Thank you that you raised him from the dead as Lord of all. Thank you for the great love that he has shown to us and please help us to respond to him with love and obedience. And please show us how we can express that love from the heart in over-the-top service to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.